the face of J.B. Phillips puts it like this. This statement is completely reliable and should be universally accepted that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I realize, says Paul, that I am the worst of them all. The man who wrote these words had come to faith in Christ out of the most bitter skepticism. There was once a time when he didn't believe a word of it. Not a single word. He considered the whole story of Jesus, especially his claim to be Israel's Messiah, and his even greater claim to be the Son of the living God, to be nothing but a preposterous lie. And he dedicated his extraordinary talents and gifts and zeal to stamping out this whole business once and for all. They believed it now. You see, there was a time in his experience when he saw the nail prints in those hands. And he became a lifelong slave to the man in the glory. And his ambassador to the Gentile world. And he states his conviction in the plainest possible language. He says this statement is completely reliable and should be universally accepted that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I realized that I was the worst of them all. The man who wrote that had blood on his hands. The blood of men and women, boys and girls, he had butchered in his unconverted day. But the blood on his hands had been washed clean by the blood from the hands of the risen Christ, now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. What we want to do this morning is take this lovely text to pieces and put it back together again. You'll notice it contains four things. A sure record. A simple reality. A sad reason. And a sensible reaction. Now here's the sure record. This statement is completely reliable. Or as the King James text puts it, this is a faithful saying. It's absolutely dependent. Now the story of the Lord Jesus is contained in four brief demos that we call the gospel running only to 3,779 short verses. More than half of these, 1,934 of them, 
contain actual words of the Lord Jesus himself. Those words contain more wisdom than can be found in all the literature of all the world. These four little memos tell of the life and ministry in the little land of Palestine of a man named Jesus. Little tiny country of about 240 towns and villages. This crowded little land witnessed the most astonishing life ever enacted on earth. The four memos record the teaching of the Lord Jesus, including uh, his 70 parables, his miracles, of the many, many miracles that he performed, the four little memos give us the story of 36. The most amazing thing he did, he stilled the storm, he walked upon the waves. He said to the hungry multitude, he turned water into wine. He healed the sick, he cleansed the leper, he cast out demons, he raised the dead. It was all down a little tiny country, everybody knew about it. There was the talk of the whole, the whole, the whole land, from one end to the other, north, south, east and west, everywhere you went. It's all they talked about. He himself was crucified, buried in a sealed tomb, and rose again. Came and went for five and six weeks, visibly bodily, appeared to hundreds of witnesses, and then went back to heaven from whence he came. That's the bare fact. That's the record. The bare facts tell us of a person who was virgin born, had no human past. <coughs> who lived an absolutely sinless life without any spot, taint, or stain upon it anywhere. Nobody can find any fault in him at all. Nobody. <coughs> He lived a supernatural life ablaze with miracles. He died to save us from our sins. He now lives forever in the power of an endless life, able to save to the uttermost all those who come unto God by him. Those are the facts. Paul says this record is completely reliable. Now everything, of course, depends uh, on the reliability of the four records, doesn't it? <coughs> Two of them were written by, by men who had personally lived in the company of Jesus for three and a half years. One of them was a hard-bitten and particularly unscrupulous and insensitive man before he met Jesus. His name was Matt. The tax collector in the customs branch of the Internal Revenue Service of his day. There's a man 
So his very nature of the occupation he had was very insensitive to other people. He, he certainly knew how to size up people. He was not the kind of man who was likely to be hoodwinked by a cheat. He being too big a cheat himself. And he belonged, before he met Jesus, to an outcast fraternity of men who were hard-bitten, who do anything to make a buck. Anyway. So convinced was he when he met Jesus that Jesus was all that he claimed to be, that he threw a big party in his home, invited all his unconverted friends, the entire fraternity of tax collectors in his part of the country to come and meet this man Jesus. That's one of the the four men who wrote the record that Paul says is completely reliable. The other man who spent time with Jesus uh, was a man we know as John. He was warm and friendly, had a dash of hot temper about him and a touch of personal ambition. He was mellowed by the Lord Jesus into the great apostle of love. He was so convinced that Jesus was all that he claimed to be that he was exiled for the faith on a lonely island in the Mediterranean. Tradition is that he worked there amongst other exiles in the marble quarry of Patmos. He was martyred. Some say he was boiled in oil. But in his old age, after years of thinking it all over, he wrote a carefully considered, contemplative, accounts of his years in the company of this man Jesus. As a mature, soon-to-be martyred individual, he wrote to confirm what, what absolutely had gripped his heart that this person Jesus that he had lived with for three and a half years was indeed the Son of God. Couldn't be anything else. That's the next man whose statement is, according to Paul, completely reliable. The other two books were written by men who didn't know Jesus personally, but who most certainly kept intimate company with a great many who did. One of them was the son of a wealthy Jerusalem mason, whose home was one of the meeting places of the early church in the city. His name was Mark. Was the nephew of Barnabas, an early disciple, the companion in, in in those early days of the great apostle Paul. And this man, Mark, who wrote his gospel, was a very, very close friend of Simon Peter, one of the most colourful friends of the Lord Jesus. In fact, Mark's gospel bears such a stamp of Peter's preaching upon it that many people think that that really was just an expansion of Peter's, Peter's preaching. And while Mark didn't become a disciple of the Lord Jesus during the days Jesus lived on earth, he knew him, he'd seen him, he doubtless heard him, and he knew almost everybody else in the city 
who did. The other man who wrote one of these records was, a, was Luke, a doctor, a latecomer, a Gentile. And he brought to the story of Jesus something the others didn't have. He brought the skill of an educated, observant investigator. As a medical man, by profession, he was well used to sifting through sometimes confusing and conflicting data to get a true diagnosis of the facts. He was a thinking man. And the gospel that he wrote that bears his name is obviously the result of painstaking research. Every witness of importance was still alive when Luke wrote and he had thoroughly investigated the story, talked to everybody. His, that was his method. He talked to the Lord's mother. He talked to James. The foster brother, the stepbrother of the Lord Jesus. Talked to the disciples. He talked to people who had been healed and helped by Jesus. He talked to the authorities in Jerusalem. Talked to the earliest members of the Christian church. These are the men themselves, the men who wrote the manuscripts, those four little memos. Very interesting assortment of people, the kind of people that nowadays that would be invaluable on a jury or on a witness stand. A good cross-section of people noted for their sound common sense. Now Paul, who in, in his day was perhaps the greatest of all intellectuals, tells us that the record is completely reliable. Everything depends on that. If these men are not telling the truth, then Christianity is a part. If they are telling the truth, the greatest, it's the greatest message in the world. If these four men are telling the truth, what they, they knew about Jesus, then, then, then what they have to say is far more important than what anybody else in the world has to say. Let's probe a little deeper. Let's ask one of the greatest experts on the laws of evidence ever to live in the United States of America. His name was Simon Greenleaf. Name perhaps not very well known outside of legal circles, but for a number of years he was dean of the Harvard Law School in his day. He wrote one of the greatest books on the laws of evidence ever written in America. It, it, it was the supreme textbook on the laws of evidence for a hundred years in this country. It ran through scores of editions. When he was a mature lawyer of 53, just seven years before his death, Simon Greenleaf decided to examine the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to see if their testimony was completely reliable. 
He decided to use as the basis of his inquiry the rules of evidence used in the courts of justice throughout the civilized world. He wanted to find out if these men were really telling the truth. In his opening statement, he said, Our profession leads us to explore the mazes of falsehood, to detect its artifices, to pierce its thickest veils, to follow and expose its sophistries, to compare the statements of different witnesses with severity, to discover truth and separate it from error. And what he did, he did what he was done in court. He brought Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John before him as a judge, and he cross-examined them. He scrutinized what they had to say about Christ as a lawyer, one of the greatest legal brains of his of his age. He compared their evidence and testimony on the astonishing story of Jesus and he put his findings into a book which runs the 543 pages. I have it in my life. His conclusion was simply this. That by every test known to the court of law, by all the laws of evidence, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are absolutely credible witnesses. And that there is no court in the civilized world which can overthrow their united testimony. Their statements concerning Christ are completely reliable. In other words, we have a dependable record. But the four gospel writers tell us about Jesus of Nazareth is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. This statement, says Paul, is completely reliable. A sure record. A simple reality. This statement is completely reliable that Christ Jesus came into the world. Well, that's what this season is all about. I mean, it's overcast and overshadowed as far as the world is concerned with, with tinsel and holly and mistletoe and all the rest of it and Christmas trees and who knows what else, but... This is the very bare essence of it, that Christ Jesus came into the world. Nobody can really doubt that he came every time you date a letter. Every time you consult a calendar. You're facing the fact that something very, very usual, unusual happened 1986 years ago. Something of so momentous a nature that, as far as the entire Western world is concerned, it completely changed the way that we keep track of time. And we date everything A.D. or B.C. hinging on the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
before Christ and Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. French revolutionaries, by the way, uh, with the all the power of government behind them, tried to change the calendar. It lasted about ten years and then fizzled out. But here now, thousands of years later, every event in the history of the Western world is dated from the advent of Jesus Christ. This statement is completely reliable, says Paul, that Christ Jesus came into the world. Nothing can be more sure than that. Nothing. I mean, these are not airy stories. These are not cunningly devised tables. This is something that happens. It says that he came into the world. Now, you didn't come into the world. You were born into the world. You see, the Lord Jesus didn't, wasn't really born. He came. He did not begin his life when he appeared as a babe in that Bethlehem farm. He was the eternal, uncreated, self-existing son of the living God. At Bethlehem, he simply changed the terms under which he was pleased to live. Before Bethlehem, he was, he had existed eternally, invisibly, inscrutably, in all his omnipotence, and all his omniscience, and all his omnipresence as God the Son, creator of the universe, the one whom angels worship, co-eternal, co-equal with God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit. After Bethlehem, the second person of the Godhead, God the Son was clothed in flesh. From then on, he had a body like yours and mine. Something he never had before. And something he'll always have. Forever and ever. You know, of all the millions upon millions of people who have populated this planet, Jesus and Jesus alone was able to decide the period at which he would enter into human life, the place where he would condescend to be born as a human being, and the purpose for which he would come into this world. Now, you weren't able to decide any of those things about yourself. But he, he, he could and he did. You see, you and I are simply born into the world. Christ Jesus came into the world. Okay? Now, one would certainly expect that a life such as that would be extraordinary. Well, so it was. In the first place, it was sinless. He lived an absolutely sinless life, and also it was supernatural. He had power over the elements, power over death. Do you ever stop to think that no imperfect human being could ever create a perfect character? Can't be done. An imperfect human being cannot invent a perfect character. 
You get some, some idea of what happens when men try to invent a character, such as Jesus, when you look at the apocryphal gospels. The apocryphal gospels are human inventions where men have tried to invent the story of what happened to Jesus between the age of 12 and the age of 30. And the, the years when he was a little boy growing up, and the years of his hidden youth and early manhood. Now you read the Apocryphal Gospels, you get an extraordinary picture of what man thinks Jesus ought to have been like. They invented a person who was mischievous, petulant, forward, revengeful. He pulled the short board into the wanted length. He makes sparrows of clay, then taps his hand and makes them fly. He rebukes Joseph. He turns his playmates into ghosts. He strikes dead with a curse boys who bump into him or offend him. Such is the Christ invented by human imagination. Not so the Christ of the gospel. Boy, hath he performed miracles, of course he did. How could he possibly be God manifest in the flesh and not do so? But, but a more perfect character has never been drawn. Every line, every brushstroke, every tint and shade of color on the canvas is absolutely perfect. An imperfect man cannot invent a perfect creature, a perfect being. So we have a sure record. We have a simple reality. This statement is completely reliable that Christ Jesus came into the world. We forget everything else at this time of year. Let us remember this. That Christ Jesus came into the world. We have a sure record and a simple reality. And we have a sad reason. This statement is completely reliable. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. To save sinners. And Paul adds as a postscript, I realize I was the worst of them all. We can be quite sure that God, the eternal God, must have had a very good reason for sending his son down here to planet Earth. This was no capricious act. This was no last-minute decision. This visit of a member of the Godhead to this planet was something that was planned in a past eternity. And the reason for this visit is not just astounding, it's awesome. Christ Jesus came into the world 
ไป <coughs> my friend, if there was any other way that God could have saved men, He would have employed it. If there was any possible way you could have saved yourself by good works, by doing good, by attending church, and being religious. If God could have saved you that way, He'd have done it. You can be quite sure of that. But it's because none of these things are any good that Christ Jesus came into the world. He came into the world to save sinners. Now, of course, people rebel at being called sinners. <coughs> And maybe there's someone like that this morning as you're sitting in the seat, you're, you're just you're just insulted that some preacher should have the gall to call you a sinner. I'm very sorry, I didn't call you a sinner. God, God called you a sinner. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says there is none righteous, no. Not one. The Bible says there is none that doeth good. No, not one. That's what God says. Now people rebel at that, but this statement Paul says is completely reliable that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He himself said so. He said, "I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Put it that. There's nobody too bad for Jesus Christ to save. A lot of people think they're too good. He came to save them. That's what the angel Gabriel told Joseph when he discovered that Mary's fiancé was going to have a baby. You perfectly well it wasn't his. I mean, here was this. Uh, Fiance of his, and she had announced uh, to 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 him that she was pregnant. And he knew perfectly well he had nothing to do with that. And he was going to put her away. He was going to break off the engagement. Let her face the consequences, which in those days was death. He was struggling with this because he loved her, and yet, and he knew she was good, and yet he couldn't reconcile the fact that everything he knew about this girl, she couldn't have done a thing like that, and he knew he hadn't done it. And while he was wrestling with this whole thing, the angel Gabriel was sent from heaven. He said, "It's all right, Mister." That holy thing that is conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. She's going to be the mother of the Son of God. And he said, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
And when the angels sang across the plains of Judah, and awoke the echoes of the everlasting hills, what time the Son of God was born, they sang, unto you is born this day in the city of David, the faith, which is Christ the Lord. Well, don't overlook that part of the story, will you? That's what it's all about. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save his sinners. Oh, mind you, he's very good at it. <laughs> he really is. I'll tell you something that you, you probably found out already that sociology can't save sinners. You can have all the degrees in sociology you like, you'll never save a single soul with sociology. I'll tell you something else too. Psychiatry can't save sinners. All a psychiatrist can do is tell you what's wrong with you. And very often what he tells you is wrong anyway. And human philosophy can't say sinners. But Jesus can. Jesus says, for Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I realized that I was the worst of them all. Or as the King James text put that I was the chief. The cheapest. He's very good at it. That's the sad reason why he has to come. It's because we, we are sinners and can't save ourselves. And so Christ Jesus came into the world to save That's good news, isn't it? That's a sad reason, but it's very good news. If you're a sinner here this morning and willing to face God's verdict on your life, not mine, not, not some religious person's verdict, that doesn't make any difference at all. God's verdict. If you accept God's verdict, then here's some good news for you. Christ Jesus came in the world to save. And he can do it, and he can do a thorough job of it. It's already saved the, the chief of sinners and turned him into the chief of saints. A sure record, a simple reality, a sad reason, a sensible reaction. Now, obviously, a fact of such magnitude that God, in Christ, has invaded human life for the sole purpose of dealing with the whole question of our sin on the cross of Calvary, making it possible for lost sinners to be saved and go to hell by putting their faith and trust in this wonderful person. Obviously, that demands some kind of a response. I mean, you just can't sit on, on, on your seat there and say, wasn't that very interesting? I, I'm so glad I've known that. Thank you very much. Uh, that just as if uh, I had been telling you that Julius Caesar conquered Britain.
You see, this is not the kind of thing that you can ignore any more than a Britisher living in the British Isles could ignore an invitation from Buckingham Palace to attend a function of the Queen or an American could ignore an invitation from the White House. Now, you get an invitation from that source, you're going to think about it a little bit, aren't you? You're going to do something about it. You might decide not to go. But you're going to make a decision when you get an invitation like that. And friends, you're going to make a decision this morning. One way or the other. This statement that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners is completely reliable. And here is what Paul says and should be universally accepted. Now you're going to do something about it. God, God expects that you to accept. And you'd accept the Savior that he's offering you, that he provided at such cost. God expects that you're going to do that. And you turn it down at your peril. That's the unforgivable sin. In the last analysis, God sends people to hell not because they're sinners. Because they won't accept the Savior. In the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, God offers you a complete pardon for having sinned against him, broken his law, outraged his holiness, and being the very cause of hell. You can accept it, or you can reject it, but you can't be... Let me illustrate as I close. About 150 years ago in the United States of America, there was a man by the name of George Wilson, who was condemned to death for armed robbery of the U.S. mail. He was condemned to death in the year 1830 in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. Shortly before his execution, he was pardoned by Andrew Jackson, President of the United States of America. But for some unaccountable reason, George Wilson refused the part. The lawyers demanded a stay of execution. They argued, you cannot condemn, you cannot execute a man who has been part. And it may be of some interest to you to know that this case was was carried right to the Supreme Court of the United States of America. And if you are one of those who want the facts, well, here they are. You can find it in the reports of the Supreme Court of the United States, Case Peters, Volume 7, Case 150, the United States versus George Wilson. Man who was pardoned by the President and who refused to accept the pardon. The state says, executed. The defense attorney says you can't execute a man who has been pardoned. Here is the decision of the Supreme Court of the United States of America. A pardon is a deed. It may then be rejected. 
And if it be rejected, we have discovered no power in a court to force it on him. It may be supposed that no being condemned to death would reject a pardon. But the rule must be the same. This statement is completely realized. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sin at infinite cost. This morning we have effected delivery of a part from the living God. My friends, a pardon is not complete without acceptance. It may then be rejected. God himself will not force it on. It may be supposed that no human being condemned to a lost eternity would reject a part. But the rule must be the same. Now there you have it. What Christmas is all about. It's not about Santa Claus and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Ranger. It's not about Christmas trees and presents and mistletoe. It's about you and your sin and God's sake. What will you do with Jesus? Neutral? You cannot. One day, your heart will be asked. What will you do with me? My friends, as you gather on Christmas morning, and there are all the presents, and they are handed to you, you'll accept them, won't you? Course. Why not accept this the greatest of all gifts? Why don't you say to God this morning, Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Realize, Father, that this, this great Savior of sinners must be accepted. We can't force him on anything. Thy Holy Spirit himself is sure to make this message clear and plain that Christ receiveth sinful man. We ask you that there may be some today who will give their hearts to the Savior and, and enter into the true meaning of this festive season of the year. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The 199.